message this morning is like father, like son, and we're going to explore the relationship in John chapter 5 between the father and the son as Jesus uh, talked about it. So my prayer for you and myself this morning is that Christ would be revealed to us, that we would learn something of our, our need for him and the beautiful news of the gospel, which is that he's provided. He has made room for us. He has provided everything that we need, and we don't have to look to ourselves for it, but we look to Jesus. So may God be glorified in our continued worship time this morning. Uh, David Jeremiah, in his book on heaven, Revealing the Mysteries of Heaven, this was actually one of Marvin's sister's books, and I was reading through it, and it tells uh, the story of, of Jack Welch, who led General Electric through some of General Electric's most successful days, Well, Jack Welch wrote a book called Winning, which was essentially a question and answer book, taking questions from people that had asked him various things. He compiled his answers into a book of business and management principles. Uh, David Jeremiah skimmed through the book and was surprised at one of the questions. Someone had asked Jack Welch, do you think that you will go to heaven when you die? And Jack Welch responded to that question as this. He said, so as far as heaven, who knows? Oh, actually, it says that he described a lot of mistakes that he made in life, in business, and uh, personal life. But he says, so as far as heaven, who knows? I'm sure not perfect, but if there are any points given out for caring for people with every fiber of your being and giving life all you've got every day, then I suppose that I might have a shot and that was Jack Welch's answer that oftentimes is the answer that we see out in our culture the church has a little bit more definitive answer than that and it's it's a life-giving answer and we're going to find that answer in the passage I'll point it out to you uh, when we come to it but it's going to be verse 24 I think here in John chapter 5 so we're going to look at John chapter 5. Now the background story is this, because I'm going to start in verse 16, and I'm not going to read it yet, but we pick it up there. Before verse 16, Jesus has healed a man who was an invalid for 38 years. And the, the Jewish authorities, the religious leaders, they're upset that he did it on Sabbath, on Saturday. They don't like his timing. And so verse 16 picks it up here where it says, this was why. The Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. 
So in the next verse, it's the words of Jesus in response to people who are mad about him healing on a Saturday. But they show us how to receive the gift of life. When he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. So the conditions of eternal life, which aren't just heaven in the future, but it's this depth of relationship with God right now, knowing the Father. Jesus defined elsewhere in the Bible, in the Gospels, he defined eternal life as knowing the Father. So he says that eternal life is for whoever, which means that's you and me, if we choose to hear the word and believe uh, him who sent me, then we get eternal life. And him who sent Jesus is the Father. He does not come into judgment, or she doesn't come into judgment. That's you and me. But we have passed from death to life. What a beautiful gift. Just that simple. Take me, Jesus. I'll have you, and you'll have me. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now, you know what's wild about this, too? That the Father has life in himself. Jesus says that he has life in himself. At the time, they, they didn't imagine. Even the disciples, after Jesus taught them that he would be raised from the dead, they still didn't get it when he raised from the dead. They were like, they told the women, they said, you're, no, you're kidding. You're, stop lying to us. Come on, you know. But it was real, and it happened, and he appeared to the disciples and, and appeared to a crowd of 500 and the, you know, the various accounts in the Gospels. And so kind of the proof, they say the proof's in, in the pudding, right, you know. The proof is in the resurrection, Muhammad didn't rise from the dead, and Buddha didn't rise from the dead, and Confucius didn't, and no Greek philosopher, and no one else rose from the dead, but the one who talked about rising everybody who believes in him from the dead is the one who rose from the dead, the risen Nazarene, the risen Savior. Um, and so, in verse 28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs, in other words, all who are in the graves, Sunrise Cemetery here in Fortuna, and all the veteran cemeteries, and all the sea, and, and all the places where uh, humankind throughout all the ages has been laid to rest, the earth and the sea shall give up their dead. And Christ will transform our glorious, or, you know, our bodies, uh, just like his glorious body is the promise of the resurrection. So he says here, those who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Don't mistake Jesus' words here as doing good equals earning life and doing bad equals uh, a resurrection of judgment. The good that he's talking about is believing in the Son. And the evil that he's talking about is refusing to believe in the Son. Because the whole tenor of Scripture tells us that, as well as verse 24 that we just read before. So here's what's happening. The religious authorities are threatened by Jesus, and religious people today are still threatened by Jesus, okay? May God deliver us from a religious spirit, okay? 
Now, when we talk about religion, a lot of times people are simply meaning, you know, the spiritual life, the God-formed life, and that's good. But there's such a way that you can nitpick other people, like they were nitpicking Jesus, where he heals a man, and it's Sabbath. And they, they're mad at the man for picking up his mat and walking, and they're mad at Jesus for healing this man of his infirmity. Incredible, isn't it? They're essentially saying to Jesus, how dare you heal on the Sabbath? In other words, Jesus, you've broken the rules. But Jesus answered them. Back to verse 17. Now, in our English translation, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, and so it's Greek to me, and it's Greek to you, but there's smart people who've written notes about it, commentaries, scholars, and they say that this word answered here is not the typical word for answered elsewhere in the Bible. That when it says, but Jesus answered them in John 5, uh, 17, and I think the word is apokrina something, which, which uh, is, is what it is. It's saying that it's like how you would defend yourself with a legal defense if you were brought to trial. So he answered and it says that he's essentially giving his defense when he said, well, hey, uh, the father's working and the son's working as well. Jesus is on trial in the minds of the authorities. And his response in this whole passage is essentially this. You're judging me? I'm the judge. I'm the life giver who on, there's going to be a day when all of the graves of everybody are going to open up and the judgment has been passed from the Father to me, the Son, and I not only give life, but I'm the one who's going to judge. Now, elsewhere, Jesus talks about how he'd you know, rather give life than judge, that that's the preferred option. And he came, <coughs> excuse me, not to condemn the world, but to give life to the world, to give this option of restoration, of healing, of salving, of salvaging, and of redemption. So... Here's the problem with the Sabbath. It's a ridiculous problem that they would come against Jesus for healing a man on the Sabbath because the man was now free in a way to rest that he never was free before, right? But the Sabbath has been controversial ever since God told the Jews at Mount Sinai not to do any work on the seventh day of every week. Now, the Bible has this idea it connects Sabbath that we shouldn't be doing any work, or rather the Jews. I shouldn't say we, and I'll get to that in a second. I'll explain why. But God told the Jews at Mount Sinai, don't work on the seventh day, which is for them, it was Friday night to Saturday night or Saturday. Don't work because on the seventh day, God rested. In other words, God didn't continue working on that day of creation. And so it's tied to creation, the creation week. Um, the command to rest on the last day of the week has been debated for over 1,900 years in what we call the Christian church. And for over 1,400 years before that, the Jews debated it themselves, going all the way back to their freedom from Egypt. Now, one command that hasn't been controversial among Christians and Jews is, thou shalt not murder. Everyone's kind of okay with that, and we don't nitpick one another on that, okay? Um, the command not to steal has never been controversial. 
The command not to lie has never been controversial. Now, we break these commands, but we've always known that this is how to fulfill this command. But Sabbath, the command to rest has created problems. So think about that. The command to rest creates problems. Could it be that we as human beings have a deep need for rest, for being rather than doing, and yet we struggle even when God says, you know, take a day off, a week. Uh, Elsewhere, Jesus said this about the Sabbath. He said in Mark 2, 26 and 27, uh, he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. In other words, he's saying, hey, I'm king of the Sabbath. I can do what I want. And, but he doesn't just do what he wants. He does what liberates. He does what empowers. He does what fulfills the command to rest. He brings rest. In fact, he said, you know, all you who, are, who labor and are, are heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest for your souls. And so he's a, he's a God who is at rest, but he's a God who also uh, works freedom in our life. So followers of Jesus are not under the old covenant with its legal stipulations at Mount Sinai. And that's a very important thing because sometimes we go back to the Old Testament and we say, well, it says here to observe the Sabbath. And then we have other believers within the body of Christ. They say, well, in order to fulfill this, we would go back to the historic Jewish roots of the Sabbath and we, w- we must do it on Saturday. And we must do it in this way. And, and that's, that happens even in the, in the Christian church, the larger Christian church, right? Well, we Christians are under the new covenant, which means that we've placed our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his grace to redeem us. He died for us in our place on the cross of Calvary. So here's what the new covenant teaches us about Sabbath. It teaches us. So then, in Hebrews 4, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So the teaching of the new covenant, if if you're with me, hang on, buckle up, okay? The teaching is that when we are in Christ, we have ceased from our own works and we have entered into a Sabbath rest. But the way that the author of Hebrews says it is that uh, there remains a Sabbath rest. But then the, the Hebrews also says, let us strive to enter into that rest, okay? Which might sound like there's a little bit of work. But it's that Christ is our rest. And every day for the believer, we are to cease from our own striving, from our own work, from our own stressors, from our own anxiety that I have to work to be better enough. When in reality, God says, no, you're a new creation. You're an adopted son and daughter of the Most High God. Your position in God is secure. In other words, we are at a place of peace. We've already been given peace. So when we say, oh, I just don't feel at peace, we are lying to ourselves, Because what God says trumps what we say. And we have to get in alignment with what God says and speak his truth and say, in Christ, I am at rest. In Christ, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, through Christ who strengthens me. In Christ, 
Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. In other words, I can do this, okay? God's purposes for you, they're accomplished in cans, not can'ts. Don't say, I can't do this because I don't have peace. No, God's already given you his peace. You can do this. Another thing, friends, is you and I are in charge of our schedules. And when we say, I'm just so busy, I got so much to do, well, whose fault is that? Is that God's fault? Or is it perhaps your fault? And God's like, I'm just waiting for you to let go and, and pare this thing down, prune this life down to a size where I can just absolutely bless your socks off, right? Um, do you get what I'm saying here? Um, here's the deal. Elsewhere in the Bible, it talks, like in Galatians 5, it talks about the, the, uh, the fruit of the Spirit as opposed to the works of the flesh. And, and do you know what some of the works of the flesh are? It talks about fits of anger and sexual immorality and other things which enforce or, or restate the old covenant commands of Sinai. But nowhere in the new, new covenant is the old covenant law of Sabbath repeated where it says, now make sure that you obey that seventh day of rest. The new covenant has a different teaching on Sabbath where, yes, it's a good idea to take a rest, but Christians, the, the history of the church has been that we shifted Sabbath from Saturday to observe a day of worship on Sunday, and that's been the historical position of the church because Sunday is the first day of the week, and the Bible says that on the first day of the week, the Lord rested. So you might be like, okay, well, what are you saying? What do I need to do, right? There's a mystery about Sabbath. You need to be at rest in your whole life, and Jesus is all about producing that rest in us. He's the Lord of the Sabbath, and that's the most important thing. Secondarily, I think the principle of the Old Covenant is that, yes, we need a regular day of rest, or you will burn yourself out. You need periods of rest every day, and not just physical rest with sleep, but you need emotional rest. There's a great TED Talk. I can't remember who gave it, but there's a woman who talked about different states of rest. I, I should have it for you, but maybe you could Google it. And she was talking about how you could be under other forms of, of stress and yet have plenty of um, sleep in your life, and yet you could have all kinds of social stressors or workplace stressors that you need to deal with so that you have other kinds of rest in your life. So I don't know if that's helpful or not, but uh, let's continue on with this idea here. Entering God's rest means that there's a cessation of human work and effort. So are you working just super hard at trying to feel loved? Are you working just super hard to realize your identity or to feel secure and safe? God wants to just freely give us these different things in our life, not through our striving, but through a, just receiving them as a gift into our life. We are to be God-dependent, not self-dependent. And that kind of rest can be our experience every day. I think that the serenity prayer hints at this. It's the full prayer, I'm going to give it to you, was articulated by Reinhold Niebuhr, I think in the 1930s. I'm not sure exactly when he wrote this thing. But quite a while ago, he said this, and you've probably heard the first part. And I really like this prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. 
living one day at a time. This is probably the part that maybe you haven't heard of. It's the rest of the serenity prayer. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace, taking as he did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next. Isn't that beautiful? Supremely happy. See, the Christian is happy because of Jesus. We're in a, in a state of joy because the, the, the joy is part of the fruit of the Spirit. And if we're having trouble accessing that joy, it's perhaps because something's blocking it or we're deceiving ourselves about it or we're getting frustrated and focusing on things that we shouldn't be focusing on. A lot of times whatever we focus upon gets bigger in our life. And what I would want you to focus on is the mystery of the Trinity, the mystery of being God-dependent and the very idea that Jesus himself, being the Son of God, in this passage says, I don't do anything except at the, the command of the Father. In other words, I'm dependent upon the Father. See this here in verse 19? This is a statement of surrender, a, a statement of being dependent upon God when he says, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. So it's interesting because Jesus is tempted by the devil in Luke 4, I think it is, and, and Matthew 4, to turn stones into bread because he's hungry, but he refuses. And yet on another occasion, he displays his divine power as the Son of God when he essentially does the same thing. He doesn't take a rock and turn it into bread, but he takes a lunch of a child and multiplies it. And yes, he did creation, okay? Uh, Jim Gaffigan jokes about this a little bit. He's a, a comedian with a, a Catholic background. And he says, what if it would have been, you know, pretzels or, or a different type of bread, you know, just boom, there's pretzel bread, you know, <laughs> different things like that. Jesus, he made and multiplied bread in a way that the crowds were like, is this guy really doing what I think he's doing? This isn't just magic. He's literally creating something out of nothing. And he did it on more than one occasion. When he turned water into wine, he turned a lunch into all these different things. And I've heard it said before, you know, tongue-in-cheek, that Jesus turned water into wine, but he can't do a single thing with your whining, okay? He can't do, he can't do anything with that. But when you are also dependent upon the Father for the things that you so desperately need, that you desperately want. Can we get honest with ourselves for a second and say, I as a human being have needs, and that's what it is to be a human being. And yet Jesus, the Son of God, came to show us what it is to be human, to have your needs supplied by the Father. Um, he was dependent upon the Father at all times. The Son of God was equal to the Father in power, glory, and being, and yet he was always subordinate to the Father. He chose to follow the leadership of the Father. He chose to never do anything without the leadership of the Father, so that the Father is preeminent. And what does Jesus say of the Father? He says, and this is a picture 
an ancient picture of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, okay? <coughs> we depict it in various ways, but here's what Jesus speaks of the Father. He says, for the Father loves the Son. In these five words, we find the foundation of our salvation. A lot of times we sing, and it's properly to sing of, of the love that God has for us, but our redemption and our healing as human beings is found in the love that the Father has for the Son, that the Son has for the Father, that the Spirit has for the Father and the Son. See, it's like, and trust me, this isn't heresy, but it's like he's a small group. It's like he's a family. It's like he's a marriage where the Son is delighted to submit to the Father because he knows that he's loved. And they had this conundrum of how to redeem humanity, they had this figured out before they ever even created the world, okay? They had it figured out. So our salvation, our healing, our restoration is secure in the love of the Father. And essentially, some theologians say this, that the, the Trinity is a dance of love in which without breaching himself, he decided to give of himself in a way that we would be brought into this mutual love that the Son has for the Father and the Father has for the Son. It is the place of healing. It is the place of understanding. Even, even though there's mysteries, right, things that we don't understand, it's the place of surrender for Jesus. Will you enter that place of trusting God with your pain, with your heartache, with all these different things, when we go through the closest of relationships, and, and Becky and I, we've, we've been married 21 years, but so many of us within the body of Christ and outside the body of Christ, we've gone through marriages that have been ruptured. And so when we find someone else that our, our heart begins to think, maybe this is the person, our heart is somewhat guarded because we've given our heart to someone before and they've trounced it and they've hurt us. And there's other relationships that, where that can happen, perhaps with a parent, perhaps with a child, perhaps with a Christian brother or sister or with a business partner or an employer or a father figure in your life or somebody where trust has been broken and we've been hurt and we're left with these different wounds and it's very natural. But what's supernatural is that the Father loves the Son. Okay? So Jesus was willing to surrender to the Father because he was assured of the love. And what God is speaking to the church in Jesus Christ is that all of us, as adopted sons and daughters, we can come to him and we can surrender the thorns that have hurt us, the heartaches that have limited us, the pain and the sorrow and all these different things where our dreams have been shattered and we've been hurt, okay? I know that you're hurt because we've all gone through garbage and I don't think anybody's gonna raise their hand this morning and say, no, not me. Our lives have been shipwrecked on the seashore of sin and doubt and pride 
and all kinds of countless sorrows that have come against us. And they make us question the goodness of God. And so we withdraw and we limit ourselves and we close off aspects of our personality, aspects of our mind, because we don't want God touching those nerves. It hurts. And yet, friend, God's calling me and he's calling you to just yield, to say, okay, God, I'll give you a shot. I'll give you a chance. The gospel is all about this mysterious dance of love where he invites us to himself and it is not a place of judgment like the spirit of religion it is a place of wholeness like a perfect father has for his son do you get what i'm saying this morning do you get the heart of it my words might not convey perfectly but i believe that perhaps you've gotten a glimpse of it R.C. Sproul says this. He says, It is the Father who sends the Son into the world for our redemption. It is the Son who acquires our redemption for us. It is the Spirit who applies that redemption for us. The love that we can envision, just a, a, a one, you know, relational love between two people, is nothing compared to the feast of Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control that exists between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, where they are in perfect harmony with one another, and yet they distinguish themselves in a way that they have distinct ministries, distinct tasks. So, the offer is made that whoever hears the word of Jesus and believes in the Father who sent him has eternal life. We've been given the gift of eternal life because Jesus is the life giver and the judge. And how I want you to apply this message this morning is with me to sit and to meditate upon the grandeur of God who simply is. The Bible says that in him we live and move and have our being. He's bigger than we are. He's grander than we are. And yet he's come to reveal himself, to incarnate himself in a man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, who came to bear our sin and our sorrow and everything. And the best is yet to come. You might have seen headlines in the news that a young man with uh, Greg Laurie's church down in Riverside, California, committed suicide. And there was another young man uh, months ago who also committed suicide, and these men were pastors. And a lot of us in the church are like, I thought pastors had the answer. You know, I thought we, we preach Jesus. There is hope beyond this life they they've interviewed people who have tried to commit suicide and who who you know are not successful and they all tell you that they are so glad that they were not successful because their problems that led to that past 
and, and they were able to, to find new solutions, to think in different ways that they couldn't think of before. There is hope for us, not just in the most desperate of times when we might consider uh, the last act of our life being terminating ourselves. That act does not honor God. It, it is an act of destroying the life that he put within us. And so we never want to uh, give any honor to that kind of a decision. But God is the life giver and he's the judge. There's some things that are mysterious. But don't give up on yourself, okay? Even if it's a little pity party or if it's something absolutely huge, let the love of the Trinity uh, consume your thinking and your imagination as you realize this statement from Romans 11.36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. There is something much bigger that God has for us in eternity, but there's also bigger things that God has planned for you. There's healing that will be accomplished in your life as a result of pursuing Him in His Word and pursuing Him in prayer in this next week, if you pursue Him, and in this next month of your life, and in this next year. There is hope. There is joy. There is peace. Because it's ultimately not about us it's ultimately about him and in him we truly become ourselves and we truly become people who are at rest people who are at peace people who know what it is to love God to love others and to love themselves